In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. With us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, we will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International, where Mayhem has a new face. The triad of terror has arrived. From the UK, the rock psychologist himself, Mr. Cal Cooper. Hi, Ron. How's it going? Good. From the U.S., Mr. Van Helsink himself, Ron Cohen. Oh, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> Anyways, and from Northampton, or wherever the hell he is, Mr. Parascience himself, who can't leave the show even if he tries, <laughs> Mr. Steve Parsons. Good evening. Actually, I'm in Wales. Whatever. <laughs> You'd like to be in Northampton, though. No. I have no clue where any of that is. You know that, right? Uh, it's the nearest bit of the UK to America. Really? Really. So we're, we're like a stone throw away then? Uh, about 3,000 miles. In a town near, very, uh, live near a town called Pembroke. I think you've got one over there near you. Yes, 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 we do. Pembroke. I did an investigation in Pembroke, actually. Yeah. Got one of the, well, my, favorite, my favorite EBP of all time was captured in Pembroke. Well, I have the original Pembroke. Yo, this is much better. This has great EVPs. I got an EVP that says, It's the Ghostbusters! That's cool. Now that's cool. I use that for my openings and everything, so it's... Uh, you know, the other side was looking out for me, that's all I can say. <laughs> so, it's, not Mr. Good, it's not as good as the time we had Elvis come through on one of the ghost boxes. That was pretty impressive. Oh, do tell yeah, more. Oh, that was in Northampton. That was in the um, the Black uh-huh. Line. Yeah, I know Northampton came in somewhere. Yeah, because I'm go. psychic. In Northampton, right? Yeah, Northampton. Uh, I was with um, Kieran at the time, and we we're down in um, the cellar of the pub with the lights on. Off. Yeah, with the the lights were on. No one had been drinking. No. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we're playing about with the ghost box, and we asked if there's anyone there. Can you speak now? And Elvis came through and he said, it's now or never. Oh, isn't that sweet? It was incredible. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's Did that make word. your book? <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, Steve, did you get anything ever, anything cool like that, like, like uh, Cal and I have? Have you got somebody come through, maybe Marilyn Monroe or Marlene Dietrich or the Queen? Uh, nope. Um, but we have had one very spectacular instance of an EVP. Um, 
but it was an EVP and an and an audible phenomena simultaneously uh, during an investigation really? many years ago. We had uh, some guests with us who owned the building, and there was in total about fifteen people in the building. And during one session, uh, the building was an old schoolhouse. And during one session, uh, every single person, bar one, in the building for around about uh, two and a half minutes heard the distinct clear sounds of children uh, playing, in, playing, running about, uh, singing, shouting. Um, the sounds were also recorded by uh, just uh, 11 or 12 sound recorders uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. So we were able to do some work to demonstrate over a course of several months, that there was no easily explainable, uh, obvious cause, like, for example, noises outside or a tape recorder or some other mundane explanation. It's, it's always baffled us. Um, I said before there was one person out of the group who didn't hear it, and that was me, because at the time it took place, I was listening to an earlier EVP that had apparently been recorded, so I had a big pair of headphones on. I was going to say you must have been talking, but that's all right. That works, too. But you realize, you absolutely realize that under the true definition of an EVP, that those sounds you captured are not EVPs. You, you are un- uh, familiar with that, right? You, you understand that, correct? I do. Okay. Because the true definition of an EVP is that it's not actually an audio recording, but it's actually the manipulation of white noise on a recorder by a spirit. And if you have two recordings uh, in, the, in the same room, it'll only show up on one for a true classic definition of EVP. In fact, what they used to do is they used to carry a video camera around, and if the EVP or the voice carried onto the video camera and the recorder, then it was just uh, counted as an EVP. So that, that gets bantered about a bit according to the classic definition of EVP, but there are, it's, it doesn't mean it wasn't a spectral uh, sound of any sort or type, but... Anyway. Oh no! It was it was definitely real, uh, a real audible phenomena because everybody could hear it. So uh, right. the fact that the recorders verified it, there have been instances on our investigations where we have managed to, during playback, have noticed uh, inexplicable sounds, but they're very very few and far between because we uh, we don't actually do in field EVP recording um, as part of our investigations. No. Cal, what about you? I mean, do you, do you delve into EVP much? No, some of the stuff that we've had on investigations before was purely accidental. I think I mentioned before when we were at um, Clifton Hall, and there was myself and only uh, two other colleagues in the in, entire place, and I got the keys and locked up for the night so no one else was getting in. And we came down the old servant staircase where they could um, get rid of bodies through the central spiral of the staircase, really tight and narrow to go down there. And when we got to the bottom and we're out on the main landing, all of our walkie-talkies, they went off one by one, the static came on. And as I lifted mine up, a voice came through and said through the static, we know you're alone in there. And we didn't have to say anything to each other. All three of us just looked at each other and realised what had just been said. And then uh, we tried to kind of make sense of it and think, well, was it straight taxi radio transmissions coming through and... We couldn't figure it out because we were so far away from the centre of the Clifton town or estate on the edge of Nottingham, and there was no uh, houses with possible baby monitors or anything like that close enough. When we went back there a couple of weeks ago, I think someone got an EVP which said something along the lines of, oh, so you're back then, or, or something like that. So there's really? a huge difference. Um, 
don't know what to make of them and we weren't expecting for them because we weren't kind of setting up any of the experiments that just happened. It's interesting uh, that we all had some type of experience with we, we couldn't readily explain. But I noticed in the uh, chat room that uh, Spooky Palooza asked uh, who makes up these rules and regulations. Well, I mean, it's just uh, how do words are defined in a dictionary? I mean, that's the accepted standards uh, that are a thing. You know, the word EVP were originally originated in what it was finally defined as. Now, of course, everybody just tries to make everything fit for their own uh, personal eutrophication, I believe. I mean, they, they don't really follow any rules or regulations, so uh, it's it's really gotten sloppy in the paranormal, to be honest with you. EVP recording certainly has particularly the infield stuff. Uh, if you look at the early work of Raudiva and Jorgensen um, and the, the use of some form of acoustic white noise mm -hmm. uh, or electronic white noise, Nowadays, the modern take on EVP, which really comes from your side of the water, Ron, is to simply take some form of uh, small handheld uh, voice recorder, dictaphone or uh, digital right. recorder, and simply go, is there anybody there do you have a message for? Is press the record button, wait, wait a few seconds, turn it off, play it back and go, oh my God, it's Elvis. <laughs> yeah, it could be, you never know. <laughs> it gets around. EVP. McDonald's EVP. But the thing is, though, I mean, that's the, the if if a spirit does know how to manipulate the white noise on a recorder, then that's you know that that's basically the theory of if you, for instance, the American, uh, oh God, I, I screw these names up, the, the American EVP Society, whatever the hell it is, but um, you know they were the the definitive uh, organization for EVPs. I think worldwide, not only just in the United States, but you know they had certain rules and stuff that you you abided by. And and now you're right; everybody just carries a recorder out there, and any static and any clicks and anything else on it is automatically a voice from the other side. No matter how much we have to process it to make it sound like a voice from the other side. What's interesting as well is um, and. Is, is people's desire to hear sounds in the noise. Uh, quite recently, I was doing a public investigation and we took along a Frank's box and we, we set it up in the, on the edge of the room and allowed people to have a listen to it. And it was, it was very, very quick that they got their ears tuned in. And as a little sort of experiment, we said, OK, um, there were six people, uh, members of the public, and we said, OK, uh, one at a time, say your name, and ask that the box, the spirits, repeat your name back. Now, we recorded the session. I think I mentioned this. And every single one of the people got their name read back to them. Um, See, that's they, interesting. To me, that's interesting. Well, it would have been, but it wasn't on the recording. Oh. <laughs> well, you we, could what, you, what you got is the effect of... Well, I think I think the Taps boys call it audio matrix matrixing. Right, well, audio, right. It's any type you, of matrix. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, you know a Frank's box, a ghost box. It's making an awful lot of noise, a noise that our ears just aren't accustomed to. And we're trying to make sense of all this row and racket and whistles, bangs, bits of music. And you know, I, I've sat actually sat um, and watched people confabulate entire stories based upon these squawky noises coming from the box. Yeah. Um, you know, they they will just go along with their own 
expectations and beliefs and you know the belief that they are having responses to what they're hearing now i'm not dismissing evp research far from it i'm just simply saying that you know we are human animals and we're frail mm-hmm. that's exactly what we did at um chillingham castle and uh, when we we're up there um we gave the public opportunities to use the ghost box and there's at least um uh, five or six people around each one. Kieran set it up, and then he went off and did his thing. And I, I just watched the public playing with this, and they were coming out with um, stories. But I, as I stood back and just watched as an observer, um, I found it fascinating that there'd be each individual go, "Oh, they just said yes there. Did you hear that?" And then everyone would agree, and then someone else would say, "Oh, they just said the name James," and then everyone would agree. So then they know that they've got these characters, James, and so on and so forth. And this story starts to unravel, and I couldn't hear a single one of these words being said clearly or consistently. And you could understand where it's, you know, the sound might have sounded like James, but then everybody agrees rather than kind of uh, individually reaching their own conclusion. It just made a a, a full story out of this random noise that was being scanned through in the radio stations. I found it fascinating. That's why I I think it's extremely important if you do a ghost bar session, or a Frank Spark, or whatever you want to call it, you, you should always record it. So you actually have a physical recording of what is said, so you can go back to it. And so everybody's saying, oh, that's said James, James. When you go back and listen to it and it says, uh, you know, Drano, then uh, you know that that was just poppycock, you know? Or an advert. But what's interesting, I had a chat to a a psychic who had also, uh, they'd been setting in on a Frank's Box session um, a year or so ago. And they they were coming up with quite an elaborate story. And then afterwards, we had a discussion about uh, the the whole session. And I said, well, you know, can't it just be that you're just hearing, you know, noises in the noise, you know, in the mush, and and make it, trying to make sense of them? I mean, I I can't hear these responses that you're claiming. And uh, the the psychic looked at me and said, well, that's because they weren't meant for you. You know, it's, it's awful, but, you know, that goes back to the old Rob thing again. It really does that, you know, yeah, a lot of people was... believe that they, they see a picture. And we talked to Steve and I, well, Carol's away in uh, the sands of Egypt. We talked about this before, is that people will see photographs and they're absolutely convinced that it's their cousin, Louis, or, uh, you know, their grandmother or whatever. And so if you try to disparage, it's basically that was only seen by them, basically, you know, that was meant for them and not anyone else. Right. <laughs> no, it, it does happen a lot. I mean, some years ago, there was a, we, a, a proud boast that uh, I think we were the first UK-based group to use thermal images on, on field investigations that they had mm-hmm. already appeared on Most Haunted. Um, and yeah. there was a, a, another group eventually got one, and they started to make some fairly extraordinary claims about the, the sort of things that their thermal imager, which was similar to ours, uh, make and model, was, was capturing. So I contacted them and said, well, you know, where are you getting this stuff? How are you getting it? And why aren't we getting it? And the response was, well, uh, I'm psychic, you're not. So the spirits are drawn to my thermal imager and not yours. So uh, that 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 told me, put me in my place properly. I need to be psyched to use this equipment. Apparently, bit more meditation, Steve. Yeah, there you go. 
You, you know, actually, I'm pr- I'm kind of excited because uh, uh, in July, uh, Cal and uh, Brian Shepard are coming over here and, and doing this event uh, called Spiriquest, which is a three-day event. And one of the uh, special events we're doing is a uh, psychic versus science ghost hunt. And this is going to be kind of neat because one half of the team is going to be led by the, the mediums and psychics, and they're using, they're using just candlelight, and they're using just... Pendulums, all the old forms of communication and everything else, nothing else. They cannot use any cameras. They can't use anything modern whatsoever. And Cal and I, we there with uh, all our little gizmos and gadgets, and whether we believe them or not, uh, but we'll have them. And uh, we're going to switch teams uh, halfway through the, the night, and at the end of the day, we're going to see what type of experience and what type of evidence people believe they have collected from these two different experiences. And, and I'm kind of interested, will the old ways win out over uh, modern contraptions? My guess is, of course, they will, because people will all... Pe- when people are on uh, investigations, the medium always does rate... Uh, far higher than any equipment results, uh, except possibly the ghost box. Um, people don't tend to take very much from the flashing lights of a K2 or, or the, the bleaks of other various meters. And, of course, things like cameras and camcorders, the results aren't terribly immediate. But when the medium turns around and says there are four horsemen of the apocalypse in the corner, uh, people do tend to sit up and take a lot more notice. So that I, was, I was involved in a TV show um, Paranormal Investigation Live over here in Halloween 2010, I think, if my memory serves. And that was the basis of the of the program, was two teams. One was a psychic team and one was a science-orientated team. Um, and to be honest with you, you couldn't tell either of them apart. Uh, the psychic team used Ouija boards and divination and, and calling out techniques. And the science team uh, were chatting away to a K2 um, and Ovilus and calling out and it was very very difficult to tell the psychic from the science to be honest with you mm-hmm. i remember well, watching some of that and the psychic team weren't they using different powders and throwing it into the fire to see if different images yep. came out of the, yeah yeah it, it was all some wacky kind of different techniques that i've never even seen before it was way beyond the pendulum and the dowsing rods and and stuff like that they were using all kinds of techniques we did. Right. We did also use infrasound. Uh, we we uh, gener- We had a big infrasound generation system uh, in the basement of the castle, which was used on one of the nights to enhance the effects for the for the people. And uh, the predicted effects did did actually occur. People did feel um, once the infrasound generator was turned on, people did feel very disorientated, very anxious, very nervous, very sort of. Uh, there was people reporting, you know, corner of the eye apparitions. It, it was quite sort of dramatic the effect of the infrasound generator. Um, but there was some wacky stuff as well. I mean, there was, perhaps one of the most m- uh, memorable moments was uh, on the last night when the, the science crew came back in and set up their ovulus in the fireplace um, of what was called the murder room. And the story attached to it is that at some point in the Middle Ages, uh, the... Uh, Lord, uh, the Lord or the Laird of the castle had thrown his bastard child in, uh, alive into the fire because he didn't want it around. Um, at that, as they set it down and they, they started calling out for evidence, the ovulus uh, basically seriously malfunctioned and started feeding back in this really, really loud, piercing scream was coming from the ovulus. And 
great for television. I mean, and the reaction of this ghost crew, um, they were almost beside themselves with fear and excitement as this thing was howling away at them. Uh, and, of course, they interpreted it as the screams of the dying child. Um, <laughs> what had actually happened, though, was that they'd just come in from a session outdoors in the woods where it had been pouring down with rain, and the ovulus was actually full of water. Uh, and was shorting out electrical oh, inside. Um, but that explanation sort of got buried um, and never really got offered forward. Even when we actually tipped the water out of the ovulus, uh, they still wouldn't accept there was anything wrong with it because they put a fresh battery in it at the start of the night. Water, of course, is... Whoop. What was the other experiment that was tried where the room was filled full of smoke? Yeah, that went badly wrong because the TV crew... <laughs> <laughs> we we were at, I was asked um, at very short notice to come up with something visual and relevant to the science team uh, because an, uh, another experiment the equipment hadn't been delivered and so I suggested well let's test the idea that that, that spirits have uh, or materialised spirits have some form of, have some form um, and what we'll do is we'll fill a room full of uh, smoke from a smoke generator uh, and shine uh, a red light through it. We use red simply because it didn't interfere with the infrared night vision cameras uh, that the TV production company And spirits, made. we all know spirits like red too. And we know spirits like red. And there the idea go. was that there would be a trigger object, which was a death mask of Bonnie Prince Charlie set up in the middle of the room and spirits were, were called to go to the mask. And if they, you know, if they had a material form, they would disrupt the mist. It was all, it, you know, it was a bit flimsy, but it was, you know, there was some method behind it. But right, it right. just, but the production company just made a complete hash of it. They just filled the room full of smoke, bundled these half dozen people into the room, put this very dim red light on them, and of course. You know, a very dark room, a very dim light. They couldn't see beyond halfway down their arm. This smoke was so thick. And they just terrified themselves. Absolutely terrified themselves. And what it really turned into was a great experiment to demonstrate, um, you know, sensory deprivation and and fear response. You know, this sounds very much like my dead chamber. (laughs) It was very interesting. Fill your room with red smoke and put a red light in it. Well, no, actually, it, it, it does have uh, it does have uh, smoke uh, coming down. It, it does have red light. It does have all those interesting things. Of course, we have a, a mirror as well, so you you can't dislock that. But uh, yeah, well, Cal will get to see the dead chamber in operation when he comes over here in July. So I may put him in it. I don't know if he'll survive it, but we'll find out. Me or Brian? You, Brian. You, my friend. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, I'll enjoy that. Didn't you say Brian's a believer? I don't. I don't have to convince Brian. All oh, right. Okay. Well, I'll sit inside the box full of K two meters and um, pendulums and stuff. Yeah. 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 We'll give you an extra uh, extra pair of underwear, so you'll be all set. Oh, thank you very much. Anyways, <laughs> I, I noticed that uh, Heather from the uh, chat room uh, mentioned uh, Steve's visit with uh, Richard Felix at Borley Rectory, and now Borley Rectory. Yeah, that's uh, Price's uh, baby, and uh, there's quite a bit of uh, documentation about that haunting. Uh, uh, have either of you studied that? Well, you, you have, Steve, because you've been there, right? 
I've been there five, five, five times in total. Um, conducted the, the the DVD was shot. Uh, we were there with Kieran, myself, some of the Parascience team, and we we'd actually managed to uh, spend twenty four hours on this, on the rectory site um, in one of the modern buildings that now exist on the site, um, and investigated the nuns' walk and the rectory and also the churchyard. And I've been back subsequently to uh, look at the ghosts of uh, Bolly Church, Bolly Churchyard, and the, the adjacent roads. It's it's a it's actually a case I'm very familiar with, and um, I'm going to boast here because uh, I actually have Harry Price's own personal copy of the Haunting of Bolly Rectory. Get out! <laughs> what what is with you, the Brits, in in the old old books? I mean, how do you guys get away with that? That that seems like it's a big deal over there. Everybody collects these old books. <coughs> I have several copies of Cashin's Gap. <coughs> we lost Cal. They got him. Yeah, they got Cal. Missed that one. They got Cal. Completely. Yeah, they got Cal. <laughs> Damn, I, am, I, I don't think everybody necessarily. In fact, I, there's not that many people that um, that do seem to collect it. Old books really? only on on the paranormal. I mean, it, it's still a good area to, to to be a book collector, particularly over here. Um, but I, for me, um, they're the tools of the trade. They're the research uh, tools that, that I use on a daily basis. It's it's nice to have a hard copy, and it's nice to get an original hard copy. Although the vast majority of stuff I work from these days is ebooks, mm-hmm. um, but it's still nice to have the original. Um, yeah. And it's also nice when you find that, that uh, garage sales and car boot sales for for just a few pounds. So, so Cal, have you any thoughts on the Bowley Rectory haunting yourself? Uh, Steve has um, had more interest in it than I have. I mean, I obviously knew about it when I was growing up and reading paranormal books, and that certainly caught my attention and kind of taught me more about Harry Price and what he did. Um, me and Steve have discussed Harry Price quite a lot, and we always have this rival thing about the haunting of Cash's Gap. I've got way more interest in Jeff the Talking Mongoose than I have in what happened at Bowley Rectory. But I certainly found it interesting that, you know, he put an advert in the local newspaper that he wanted investigators to come along and he agreed to train them up and gave them all notebooks that they could take around the place and teach them how to set up experiments such as drawing around things. I found it fascinating, but I I certainly don't know as much as Steve does on it because he's quite a fan of Harry Price in this particular area. Well, Harry was uh, perhaps one of the first uh, ghost investigators who took science into the field. Um, yeah. he, he'd, he'd spent already spent a number of years testing psychics and had established the National uh, Laboratory for Psychical Research. Um, but Price went further and was was the first, really, to start taking equipment into into the field, taking very temperature, uh, very sensitive thermometers to Borley. Uh, he he also started to pioneer the use of infrared um, cinematograph camera, um, which he planned to use at Borley. Um, he made sound recordings with uh, at, at a number of haunted locations. Um, and indeed, I think back in, was it 30, I'm going to get this wrong, the date, but I think it was 1936, okay. Price made the first ever broadcast from a haunted house, uh, which was made for the BBC. Wow, that is cool. Uh, but, but all of the, uh, the vast majority... So he was the original most haunted then? <laughs> Definitely, and he was—he—he he, he had a huge following in his day. He was uh, as big as you know 
most haunted. Um, he, in his, in all of the techniques that we use today, uh, you know, in the, in the majority can be traced back to Harry Price. Um, they've changed in some respects a lot and in other respects not a lot at all. Uh, people still draw around trigger objects. People still take temperatures. People still take uh, photography. Um, some of the things... Well, we you are going to have to hold on to that thought, Steve, because we have to actually take a break right now. That first half just kind of flew by. So anyways, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper and Steve Possens and the incomparable Van Helsing here on Tojinet Pararex Ghost Channel and Beyond. We'll be right back after the following messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give the awards to the Parrax family. Take 6,427. All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolek, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so Ann, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, I'll have to get a new (laughs) co-host. I am brave beyond belief. Yeah, we'll see. scares me. So anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann and Ron. See you then. back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with uh, Cal Cooper, Steve Parsons, and Ron Kolick. Right here on uh, Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. And I know that Cal is like chomping at the bits to talk about Egypt, but i got to mention a couple things. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the first thing is that uh, I, all I can say is my paranormal study group is so privileged because we are going to have Mr. Parascience himself addressing us tonight and uh, on EMF and uh, full spectrum. And this is really a treat for these guys. Is that enough kiss-ass for you? <laughs> I'll be way so, past yeah. his bedtime. I know, I know. No, it, no, it's no, really no. interesting. You know, I'm, I'm, ghost hunters uh, stay up after midnight, Cal. I, I'm, I'm interested to see there. how they're going to take to you, Steve. I really, uh, because you're a little bit, I don't know what the word, let me see, critical, skeptical, I don't know, agnostic, I don't know. 
all the above. I'm known, for my, I'm known for my tact and diplomacy, Ron. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, uh, anyways. And and I do want to mention one other thing. Uh, next Tuesday, we are doing another Dining with the Dead here at the uh, Wyndham Restaurant, the Haunted Wyndham Restaurant, of course, with uh, author and paranormal investigator Thomas D'Agostino, who's written like a dozen books, including ones on vampires, which we haven't even touched on in this show, but we'll have to one of these days. So, anyways, we're going to play a Beyond Bizarre, and then when we come back, we're going to let... Cal talk all about his wonderful Egypt trip. Hmm. Yay! <laughs> A tisket, a casket. The words coffin and casket are commonly substituted for one another, but they do technically mean different things. A coffin is defined as a box or chest for burying a corpse and is generally wedge-shaped and simple. A casket is almost always rectangular and fancier than a coffin. In the 15th century, a casket was used to store jewels. And good night and good luck. Ready to move on after a painful divorce? then you should probably purchase a wedding ring coffin. Described on the creator's website as the perfect gift for yourself or loved one for bringing closure after a divorce, the coffin allows you to, quote, bury the past and move on to a new tomorrow. Prices starting around $30 for beautiful miniature mahogany coffins inscribed with sayings such as, gone and forgotten, six feet isn't deep enough, and I do not. Visit the company's website at WeddingRingCoffin.com. Another freaky fact from the Book of the Bazaar, available wherever books are sold. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> I love that. She's, she's my favorite. Now, it, it, that's a great... Either book is, is really, really cool. Either Beyond Bazaar or the Book of Bazaar. And they're, they're really awesome. It's all these little tidbits that are... Yeah, unbelievable. That's all I can say. Uh, they're also, uh, I always put one in my uh, newsletter that goes out every month as well, and it's a very popular thing. So, anyways, uh, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International with Cal Cooper and Steve Parsons and Mr. Ron Kolick. And I guess we'll have to let uh, Cal talk about his trip to Egypt because I was so jealous I didn't even want to talk about it. But, anyways, <laughs> Cal, how was it? Yeah, um, it was fantastic. We were there for two weeks, and I, I think three or four of the days were the most important ones to me, where we went out to some of the um, classic sites and uh, buildings and temples, and on one of the days we went out from Luxor and flew up to Cairo, so we could go and see the pyramids and the Sphinx. And my God, when we drove by, I just couldn't believe the sheer size of the things and knowing that there was much more to them when they were first built. I mean, now we've just got the stone left over and it's now in this sort of stepping structure. But to know that it used to be covered in limestone and it was smooth down the side and it had a gold top to it. I just thought when I got up to it, it was incredible thinking that this one structure has been built for one person simply because of the belief that they're going on to something greater to this afterlife. And they've got this entire building just below the pyramids where the mummification process took place and priests would go through preparing the body for the afterlife and also um, getting ready to house the ghost inside the tomb, the het car, the house of the ghost or the house of the car. And when we went inside the pyramids, it was nothing like I'd imagined. I mean, I knew it was going to be thin corridors going to this main burial chamber but some of them were so small and tight to actually creep through. 
and really? the air was so dry and warm it was claustrophobic to an extent because it was pushing against your chest and it was quite hard to breathe in there but all the time you just couldn't stop looking at these walls of perfect carving um, how they put this together I mean these were massive granite blocks and they were about the size of uh, me if not some of them were, were bigger and to think that they'd actually constructed this entire pyramid out of these things how they managed to cut the granite in the first place was incredible it must have taken 20 to 30 years for them to put it all together for this one person nah, a couple of years alien technology we all know that well it could have been who knows but I, I was just blown away by the whole thing it really really was incredible and we went from the largest pyramid to the smaller one of the three because it's the grandfather's grandson and when we went to the grandson's uh, pyramid, that was incredible because you could see that only in a, a few years or so that the technology advan had advanced so much that the, the way they'd actually sculptured the inside of the pyramid and the different um, sections with inside it was, had completely changed in advance. And there was even interlocking bricks on the corner. Um, incredible that they even discovered that there was a certain way that you could place the bricks together so there was a vacuum and they were airtight. You didn't need a form of cement to stick them together. You could ju just simply use air to stick them together. It was great. And one of the main things I tried to do while I was there was to get information on people's opinions and beliefs about ghosts and see how it had changed over time. So um, I've got a, a few texts on ancient Egyptian beliefs on apparitions, which was the, the bar, the car, and the coup. So you've got the bar going on into the afterlife for judgment, which was the spiritual heart, the car an absolute double of the self, which is what in modern days we would describe as a ghost that you can see and interact with, and also the coup, which is this spiritual entity that comes out of the body like a white mist and haunts the surrounding area um, of where your body lies. Um, when I ask people about modern-day experiences, it comes a lot from Islamic tradition, and they've also got... Um, uh, the influence of Muslims and Christians over there, and they have kind of two different forms of ghosts over there in modern day. The ones are called ones are called jinns and or genies, yep. and they are evil spirits that can kind of haunt certain areas to keep you away from them, such as tombs, and they can possess people supposedly by entering through the mouth. And then there's also a free a free. Uh, when you have a violent death, the blood that is spilled from the man that hits the ground, if that is disturbed you will unleash this afri, or sometimes you could just see an afri haunting that surrounding area where the blood was spilled. The interesting thing about afri is the closer you get to it, the more it grows, and it makes a strange sound as it grows, which is basically toot, 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 as it grows. <laughs> and it grows bigger, it can grow bigger than houses, and supposedly it can lean over you and squeeze you to death. So it can actually inflict physical harm on a person. And there was a few, a few people that I spoke to who knew people that had experienced in a three but ran before it got too big because it, it scared them. But they were certainly walking close to, say, a, they saw this woman walking down the road at four in the morning and it was where they knew a woman had died. And the closer they got to her, the bigger she grew and she'd grown as tall as a house and they, they ran petrified so they didn't get to see what happened after that. So, you know, this cultural change in apparitions is fantastic and also seeing how the ancient Egyptians viewed it and also the fact that they did document these experiences as well. It was an incredible experience. And uh, so I've been going through the books at the moment to see what more I can read up about it. So, Steve, have you ever gone over to Egypt? Uh, no, he's... Uh, I, I'm, it's one place that's, of course, on the to-do list, but uh, yeah. no, I've, uh, I've not been over there. So you're uh, like I, the... 
uh, yeah, very envious. Um, <laughs> Um, but Cal's uh, absolutely right. We, we treat, you know, uh, ghosts um, as a as a relatively modern phenomena. You know, people sort of assume that ghosts follow spiritualism in the middle of the nineteenth century. But but realistically, um, as long as man has been able to write, the different cultures from the Babylonians, the Assyrians, through the Greeks, Romans, the Egyptians, all recorded. Uh, instances and examples of ghosts uh, perhaps i think the most famous takes place and it's become almost the prototype of all haunted house stories is uh Pliny the younger's letter uh, letter to sura in 50 ad and he describes uh the haunting of a house in athens um which was a creaky house um, where nobody could could be induced to live, and in the dead of night, the sound of clanking chains would be heard. Right, right. That's actually in my book, Goes the Day. All right. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's interesting is Athenodorus's approach, because, as you know, I advocate ghost hunting by not ghost hunting, uh, but because the original witnesses are invariably usually not hunting for ghosts when they have an experience. Mm-hmm. And Athen- Athenodorus... Um, he takes, takes rent of the property and, and spends time there. And indeed, while he's sitting uh, working at his, at his books, he, he hears the clanking of chains. Uh, but Athenodorus doesn't raise his eyes or stop his work and keeps his attention fixed on what he's doing so that he wouldn't be distracted and so that he wouldn't be uh, focused on the ghost and it's only until the ghost comes nearer and enters the room in which he, he's actually sitting that he turns and, of course, the ghost beckons to him. Uh, but he t- actually, he waves the ghost off and says, hang on, no, you wait there while I finish my work. And indeed it did. Seriously? Yeah, that's right. Yep, now I remember that, yep. There are some ancient texts that um, go back to the 14th dynasty. There's even in the pyramid texts a record of um, a ritual where if you drink beer while praying to Hathor, you can ward off evil spirits that will come and try oh, and there you go. Yeah, and the, one of the records from the 14th dynasty describes of a priest who was searching the land trying to look for a place for his own tomb. And it was basically an expedition where he'd taken uh, several colleagues along. And upon this trip, they stumbled across someone else's tomb by accident and encountered the car. So the ghost that haunts the body, or is the exact double of the body, which stays in the tomb and can leave whenever it wishes, came out and approached this priest, and they sat down and had a long conversation with each other about what the car did when it was a living person. And um, it's documented in... Oh, who wrote it? It was one of Charles F. Horne's um, early books on uh, fragments of the earliest Egyptian ghost story. And um, just briefly mentions this in about four or five pages, just what the, um, the priest actually got up to in this conversation. But it is taken fr- from fragments of early documentation, so the whole story isn't quite complete. But I thought that was fascinating. And also, I discussed this earlier with Steve in the week, the fact that they have this idea in their religion that the car is just a double of the body. It has nothing to do with evidence for survival of death, in their opinion, because they believe that you have to go on to something greater after life. You can't stay stuck on this earth plane. You have to go on to this judgment path, and if you, your heart outweighs the feather of truth, you can go on to meet Osiris and live in the happy lands forever, as they describe it. And um, so this ghost is just something that's guarding the body. Um, no matter how much relevant information the car can come out with that's absolutely correct to that living person's life. 
And um, we describe these in modern day ghost sightings, the fact that you can encounter an apparition, it looks like the person, it has the memories of the person that we knew when they were alive. So it seems to be evidence of survival if you can verify that that information is true or it's something that people wouldn't otherwise know, but it is connected to that body. There's an interesting story about the London Underground, which I probably described before. I think when we last had Brian Shepherd on the show. And... Um, it was about a British Museum station on the London Underground, which is now closed. But it, it's obviously right next to the British Museum where they house one of the largest Egyptology collections and also some of the mummies. And when they, um, in the, about the 1940s or 50s, I think it was, when they took a new mummy to the museum, down on the station platform, some of the workers started seeing this apparition of an Egyptian walking up and down the platform wailing. And this was at a time when they just closed the station down, so there was no one using it. And it corresponded with the time that they'd actually put this new mummy in the museum, in the basement, ready for preparing it for display. And the basement was the same level as the station platform. So that I found quite interesting, that somehow this ghost is attached to its physical body and has you know, come all the way over from Egypt to London and people are witnessing this apparition, which the ancient Egyptians say would be attached to the body and would haunt its surroundings. So you had the, the actual physical body in the tomb and the car haunting its surroundings. So I find that quite interesting as well. You know, what's interesting is, is once again, in my book, uh, Ghost of Day, is that... Uh Oh God! I just forgot his name. Uh, the guy, the hero of Trafalgar, Nelson. Nelson, right? Nelson. Yeah. Nelson is actually believed to haunt a lighthouse in Nova Scotia. All right. And and the reason that happened that way is that the the lighthouse keeper of the was his um, uh, navigator. And uh, when he retired, uh, they believed that Nelson went with him to Nova Scotia because he didn't like where they put his body. <laughs> so, anyways, he supposedly haunts a lighthouse in Nova Scotia. So maybe spirits can pick, choose where they want to end up with if, if on the, on the uh, earthly plane. Well, according to the spiritualists, they can. But what's we've talked very much about uh, the the sort of ancient cultures uh, of mm -hmm. Europe and Eurasia, uh, the Egyptians, right. the Greeks, the Babylonians. But what's interesting is uh, Andrew Lang uh, in the nineteenth century recorded uh, myths and religions of uh, all of the great societies, and included a lot of the North and South American um, beliefs. And you've got. Uh, you know, sort of. I mean, he, he, the work is in two volumes. Um, wow. But he, the, there is a similarity. I mean, uh, just just in front of me now, uh, he's talking about the Sioux, the Blackfoot, the Iroquois, uh, the Pueblo, the Natchez, the Aztec, Inca. Mm -hmm. And he says, what one thing that's uh, absolutely constant throughout all of these creeds and races. Now, these are new world religion um, uh, races that that were disconnected. Um, very early on in time, uh, pre pre sort of ice age, um, mm -hmm. fr from the Eurasian Europeans, um, but this this the very threads that are woven through the these old world faiths are very similar. Dread, an absolute dread of ghosts, uh, religious uh, adoration, very similar, and a belief in this sort of kindred power, the worship of inanimate objects and fetishes. There are so many similarities that Lang noted between the, the old world faiths 
well, let's say the old world, the older religions of the new world and the old world. Um, that you know, and these were that were disconnected. Uh, uh, when was um, uh, around about a hundred thousand years ago, wasn't it? Archaeologists, um, Folsom, uh, Folsom in New Mexico, didn't they find some arrowheads uh, from some of the very first pre pre Indian settlements? Right. Well, there's there's, there's been well, I mean, there are lots of theories, and and the, they do find it, but you don't know. The problem is with some of that stuff is that you don't know how much it was carried by uh, traders or carried by you know whoever hunters or whatever, and and was traded from one. You know, in other words, you could start off in in Peru and end up in Canada. But and be honestly, if it was traded over and over and over again, you know, so it could actually be contaminated evidence that you know we really don't know how they got there. Oh no, absolutely. But uh, what is interesting is that this: there is this common thread uh, running right right the way through uh, so many of these different societies and religions. Some right. years ago, I was working with a Japanese television company, and they'd come over to the UK specifically because we hunt for ghosts. And in their culture, ghosts mm-hmm. are something rather like in the Egyptian culture, ghosts are something really to be feared and not something to be messed around with. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're deadly. You do not go near them. You spend your, you, you go out of your way to appease them and to make offerings to them to make sure that they stay where they are and don't come and mess about with the living. Um, and that was, you know, very common in Roman and Greek practice. Uh, the Romans, the Greeks had days of the dead where they were and particular rituals to make sure that the dead stayed in the grave and didn't come back and interfere with the living. Right. You know, you know what's interesting. Just talking with you, and it's totally off the subject. And I do apologize for this, but uh, I know someone who actually has a haunted uh, doll from Japan, and they've actually had to take it out of their house and store it in a storage room because it's an expensive doll. But I was just think this would be an interesting experiment to do at SpiritQuest uh, when you come over, Cal. With me. is it bring this doll over there and then just let people sit with it for a little bit and then write down whatever they, whatever comes to mind and just, you know, uh, totally, you know, from anybody else. Otherwise, just write it on a piece of paper and we'll, we'll take it and we'll put it in a box. And it'd be interesting to see if we have a common thread. In other words, you know, uh, uh, would different people pick up the same thing or, uh, or what what type of feelings or emotions? I mean, that'd be kind of cool. And, and that'd be interesting to see perhaps uh, if you know, emotions and that type of stuff can be carried from an inanimate object. Maybe not even take it out of the box, maybe just leave it in the box and just see how people feel if they do pick up on anything, if it is genuinely a, a haunted doll. That, um, well, well, I would I would go so far as to tell the parapsychologist how to do his job here because I would do it with two dolls. <laughs> you didn't give me a chance to fully explain that. should have a control doll. <laughs> so yeah there's different ways we could do it <laughs> i've got to keep pointing out that ghost hunters predate parapsychologists <laughs> this is 
Joe. All of, all of the ideas that parapsychology claims as its own was even Xenocards. Xenocards thought of and accredited to the Ryan Institute in the 19, 1930s, and Dr. Zena, um, were in use over 60 years earlier by psychical researchers using um, car, a, a group of 25 cards with five symbols on uh, for card guessing, for telepathy testing. So even the Xenocard is... Uh, the work of the psychical researchers and not parapsychologists. Actually, if any, any of you guys see Karen O'Keefe, tell him he still owes me a deck of those Ryan cards, by the way. <laughs> oh, I've got a deck. <laughs> I, but you got I won't hold my breath. I, actually, you can buy them. Uh, if you go to the Ryan Institute website, you can actually buy a set from them. Yeah, you can. You can, actually. You can? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I, was, I was doing an experiment with someone once, and they knew what the five symbols were, but it was one of those experiments where they hadn't done it before, so they kept on forgetting what the symbols were. <laughs> and they were being brutally honest sometimes. You know, I thought they were joking around, but one of the guesses, they said um, they thought different symbols or pictures would crop up. And um, the card was either, it was, it was either a computer-based study or it actually got the cards there, but one of their guesses was bacon. Bacon? Not square, not square, they said bacon. <laughs> oh, actually, bacon is the wavy lines. I mean, that's clearly evident. Well, it could have been the wavy lines, but I thought... I've, I've, had, a, I've had somebody guess yacht. Yacht? During a Xenocard test? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know we're running out of time, and uh, I do want to ask you, um, Cal, is, is, is when you went into these tunes and everything else, I mean... First of all, I mean, are you open to the paranormal? Which do you think that you can actually sense it on any any level at all? Well, uh, Nori was with me as well, so she she sometimes gets um, impressions and uh, so mm -hmm. forth. And she said she did try and open herself, but while she was over there, but she felt nothing really inside the tombs. Um, nothing. Huh? And we went to quite a few. Um, right. The main thing for me as a psychologist, I was just blown away by their the whole ideas about building these tombs and the hieroglyphs and the afterlife belief behind it. So right. the, there's no psychic impressions came forward. The only buzz I was getting was just from the fact of being there and knowing what they were for. Um, I, I, I was just touching the walls and the hieroglyphs all the time, just knowing how old they were and knowing that this was a hidden secret for thousands of years. So... Um, I've tried to get as much information as I can about any psychic experiences over there or seeing ghosts, but it's very difficult. And um, as Steve just mentioned with Japan and the idea that ghosts are something to be feared, and certainly that's what the ancient Egyptians possibly used them for. It's a way of policing people from um, tomb raiding and going and stealing things. Um, they... They don't want to talk about ghosts in modern society. I tried to speak to some people about ghosts in modern Egypt, and even though some people don't fully follow their Christianic beliefs or um, Islamic beliefs, and they might dro uh, drink or smoke, they still fear ghosts, and they didn't want to speak about them very much. They gave me an odd inkling, but they'd had relatives or friends that had seen them, and they just didn't want to go into the stories, as though they no, were... No, it's interesting because, you know, Derek Okora did his TV show over there. Mm-hmm. Did, did either of you see that? Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, that, I think go ahead. Well, one thing that, regardless of their beliefs, what it certainly did demonstrate is that they're not averse to taking money. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the universal uh, belief. 
or maybe they just offered him some. Uh, they just offered the uh, them some camels. I don't know, but um, I mean, you know, when 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 it comes to making television programs and and that series in particular. The portrayal of the of the Egyptian history was was deeply flawed, as I'm sure Kel discovered when he went over there. Uh, on my very limited knowledge of of ancient Egyptian history, um, the program was purely for entertainment, and, and the backdrop of ancient Egypt and the pyramids and the big temples was was you know it was a visual effect. Um, Derek was was you know given information actually on camera uh, about the locations. I thought you were about to say it was all just a backdrop and he filmed it here in the UK. He never went to Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be cruel. Anyways, I, I, that's the uh, doorbell, so the pizzas are here, which means we have to wrap it up. So can't let, let the pizza get cold. So, um, Steve, I guess I want to thank you so much for joining us again, and I'm going to talk to you in a little bit. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm really looking forward hours, to this. Three hours break, I think. Coffee time. Keep drinking yeah. the coffee. Yep, do it, do it. So, uh, anything you want to mention uh, did you, uh, coming up, uh, Steve? Uh, no, I've got no book to sell. I think we should give the last few minutes to Cal, because he's got lots and lots and lots of books to sell. Absolutely. Okay, so, uh, Steve, thank you, and I'll talk to you in a bit. And, Cal, what, what do you got? Um, yep, Telephone Calls from the Dead is now available for immediate dispatch. If people go to www.calcooper.com, you can order it on there or send me an email. Or you can go to Amazon.co.uk. Copies are also available on there as well. And, um, yeah, please buy the book or send me any questions on Telephone Calls from the Dead or if anyone else has had any more strange experiences with the telephone, I would love to hear more. I'm still continuing this as a study and as a project, so I'd love to hear from anyone. Oh, you are continuing it, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I will continue it. I'm not going to stop at the book. That's where Rogan and Bayless stopped. And I know we got about like thirty seconds, but you know what? I mean, you always wonder why psychics get such a bad name. Well, you know, this is why because just here in the United States, in fact, in my state, uh, a Hingham hiker has been charged with swindling client out of thousands of dollars to lift the curse. <laughs> so, I mean, how, how does that not, you know, hurt? whatever is associated with, you know, psychic readings, which includes the paranormal. I mean, it's, it's people like that that totally destroyed anything it, that uh, other people do. So, I mean, have you heard of stuff like that in the UK? Yeah, a few times I've heard of, yeah, a few, a few times. And, some, um, some, some hair-raising tales. Yeah. yeah. It's but anyways, I hear the tune. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Cal Cooper. Thank you, Steve Parsons, Mr. Parascience. Go to his website. It's got all kinds of cool stuff on it. Go to Cal's website. It's got Cal on it. So and what, else could you ask? what else could you ask for? And if you really get bored, go to the New England Ghost Project website, ghostproject.com. Yeah, buy his thinking book, too, so you get him off my back. So until next week, good night. God bless, everyone. Goalies to ghosties, long-legged beasties.